Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We are beginning our theological seminar of the year by studying the existence of God and the person of God, which is the proper place for theology to start, theology proper being the study of God or God-knowledge. Of course, there are many other studies in theology, such as <coughs> eschatology and homardiology, angelology, ecclesiology, soteriology, anthropology, and other subjects. But first of all, to begin at the beginning, we begin where we should begin, where the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. Our lesson today deals with the person of God. As we've remarked before, the Bible teaches God and presents God as a personal being. The Athenians want a neuter force field, an energy force, exactly as the modern educators do, and the great objection that the National Education Association and the Health Education Welfare Department have with the Word of God is the fact that it presents a personal being to whom a person is personally accountable. In plain words, judgment. The study of God has been the ambition of philosophers for millenniums. Some sit and meditate and try to think in the realm of the eternal being. But the only true knowledge of God can be gained from the Bible, really. Our TM and Guru and Ramakrishna and the Sukhas and Vedas and Shastas and Puranas and Tripitaka and the Bhagavad Gita and the rest of the stuff may temporarily uh, obtain <clears throat> peace of mind, like a good uh, psychoanalyst can do in psychotherapy, <clears throat> may temporarily gain the sinner <clears throat> the illusion or delusion that he is right with God because he has what we call an inner peace. <clears throat> However, the inner peace also can be produced by drugs. The mad search today for peace is only evident of the modern man's condition. The Bible places no such emphasis on peace and love as is laid by the modern international socialist. As a matter of fact, the last prayer in the Bible is not for peace or for love. The last prayer in the Bible is for the second coming of Christ. The peculiar positive approach that the modern unregenerate man has to history makes him think of only of peace and love, peace and love, peace and love, love and peace with an occasional whack at security. Any Bible reader knows these are very small matters. As a matter of fact, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. And Christ's great title, Melchizedek, identified him first as the king of righteousness first, and after that, the king of peace. Anybody who reads the Bible knows the quotation, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, is not a Bible quotation. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, quoted by every president, every pope for the last ten years, and for the last five by Tau Star, is not a Bible quotation. The Bible quotation begins, Glory to God in the highest. Now, without glory to God in the highest, of course, sitting and meditating and bringing in peace amounts to absolutely nothing at all. In John 1.18, we read, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Again, 1 John 4.12 says, No man has seen God at any time. And again, when the Lord spoke to Moses, he said, Thou canst not see my face. Moses talked to God and saw a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Personality is characterized by possessing knowledge, feeling, and willpower, as we've said on our previous broadcast. And God is a spirit. When Christ comes up from the dead, he says, My hands and my feet, it is I myself handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, you see me have. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in the spirit and truth. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. First Timothy 6.16 says, God only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see. 
The Lord our God is one God in contrast to the plurality of pagan gods. It isn't a pantheon of gods with Ramakrishna and Vishnu and Siva and Osiris and the rest of the monkeys. It's here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, we read the Lord is speaking of himself, saying, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Isaiah 45, 21. God has been very definite in revealing himself and revealing himself as a personal God with a personality, intelligence, knowledge, feeling, and willpower. Of course, the great uh, Ramakrishna, Bhava Gita, Bhuva, Nirvana, Prajna, uh, Samadhi state of being has nothing to do with feeling or willpower. It's a submersion into a presence that is not a person. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person and is manifest in the flesh, he bore a man's name, Jesus. Now, God has natural attributes. We call these incommunicable attributes in uh, theology, and we call the others uh, communicable attributes. God's incommunicable attributes are, first of all, his infinity, his immutability, and his immensity. By incommunicable, we mean that God in himself, as a spirit and as a person, has certain innate qualities which cannot be transmitted to man, which a man, by his natural ability or reasoning or senses, cannot grasp. This is why the unsaved man has a tendency always to become a self-righteous agnostic or a self-righteous atheist. Since he cannot grasp God with the mind, he figures either there is no God or you can't get to know him. God has certain natural attributes, which is a quality, property, or unique character of something. Uh, God possesses certain basic qualifications. He's eternal. We refer to this as his infinity. He's eternal. He is unchangeable. We refer to this as his immutability. He possesses all power. He's omnipotent. We speak of all God, uh, God too, as being uh, present everywhere at the same time. This is called omnipresent, or in the classical theologians, immensity. He has all knowledge, which we call omniscience, all-knowing. In short, God within himself, as an intelligent, living being, the author and creator of all life and the source of all life, God is infinite, immutable, unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. Such a God could hardly keep company with a sinner except on the grounds of some other atonement or propitiation than the golden rule of the Ten Commandments and other pagan nonsense drummed up by unsaved people trying to misquote the Bible to their own destruction. First of all, God is eternal. To be the true God, he must have neither beginning nor ending. He must be eternal. He must be more eternal than the universe of the heavens, which the pagan Greek philosophers thought were eternal because they believed in what they call uh, the eternity of material. Uh, they believed that material things were eternal. The belief that material things are eternal, we will discuss more when we get into the doctrines of anthropology and creation. But, of course, any man knows it takes a great deal more faith to believe in the eternity of matter, as all dialectical materialists believe, than it does in the eternity of a spiritual being. <clears throat> After all, Dr. Milliken was given the Nobel Prize for proving that the things that appear are made of things that do not appear. They gave the poor gentleman $1,000 for that. They didn't give the writer of Hebrews that, although the writer of Hebrews mentioned that about uh, 
1,800 years before Dr. Millikan was born. In the book of Hebrews, you will find in chapter uh, uh, 11 that uh, the atomic theory is given exactly as it should be. The things that appear are not made of the things that do appear. And so a man who believes in eternity of matter is somewhat of a fool beside being very unscientific and being dishonest intellectually. All right. God is eternal. An idol is disqualified, for it was made by someone, thus it had a beginning. In Psalm 90, verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou art formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In Genesis 1, 1, we read, In the beginning, God. God has always existed. It is true that Taylor's so-called living Bible and other corrupt translations have changed Genesis 1, 1 to try to make something there before God, but this is quite typical of pagan speculation and the Disneyland type of theology that's being taught in America today. Uh, God is unchangeable. God is so constituted that he cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is unchangeable. He says, The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Once God has said something, he's going to do it. It is true the Lord may change his mind about a circumstance that's flexible, about which he has laid down no definite decree, such as the destruction of the earth in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, but where God has spoken and committed himself to writing, and there are more than 1,100 promises in writing you can get your hands on, he does not change nor repent. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That is an all. In God's incommunicable attributes are the attributes of all power or omnipotence. To lack this, he'd not be God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's creative power. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Power and authority by speaking. The spoken word of God carries a power and authority to it far beyond the church decrees of any church that ever was or ever will be. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when God said, let there be light, there was light. Man cannot speak rain into existence. Man cannot speak lightning or thunder into existence. Man cannot speak life into existence. God can. Man makes things out of existing materials. God creates out of non-existent materials, objects that are good and perfect. Notice in Genesis 1, 4, quote, it was good. In Job 42, verse 2, Job says, I know thou canst do everything. The psalmist said, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33, 9. And speaking to Jeremiah, the Lord said in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Certainly not. He can do anything or everything. A man said, well, could uh, God move an immovable boulder? Or could God create a sun so heavy that he couldn't move it? You know, you get a lot of nonsense going on. When I got my master's degree in theology, they, the board of Hypercalvinists called me up there, the graduates of Princeton and Westminster, and they said to me, they said, Mr. Ruckman, what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? I'll always try to put something hard on you like that. It doesn't amount to anything. You international socialist uh, ethnic trying to keep your ethnic purity of Karl Marx and Huxley, you haven't got any sense drum up that kind of foolishness. I mean, what fool couldn't answer that? When an irresistible force meets an immovable object, the irresistible force is deflected without stopping, and the immovable object is shattered without moving. You read me? 
Of course, God can't do something inconsistent with his own nature. By virtue of his nature and by virtue of the definitive attributes of his nature, God can't lie. God can't go back on his word once he's committed. The Lord can't see your sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord couldn't take a saved sinner and put him into hell after he became a member of the body of Christ. After all, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. No part of him is going to suffer again. So we talk about God doing everything, anything. Of course, we are speaking in the confines of the limits which he had laid down for himself. <clears throat> and as a holy being, and holiness is one of his communicable attributes, as a holy being, we can know that God is holy. As a holy being... We can be absolutely certain that God will not do anything to violate his nature, which is essential righteousness, holiness, and goodness. God would certainly never take an unsaved man and put him up there in heaven without converting him to Christ, where he'd have to come before the throne and sing, Holy, 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 and cast his crown before the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ when he wanted to throw it at the feet of Buddha. You follow me? In other words, God will be consistent with his nature. God will certainly not elect 150 million people to go to heaven and then damn 150 billion people to go to hell. And when they show up for the judgment and say, I couldn't get saved because my sins weren't paid for, the Lord's not going to laugh at them and say, well, tough apples, I just happened to choose the other kind. No provision was made for you because the atonement was limited. I mean, there are some people crazy enough to think that, that that'd be a violation of God's essential attributes. God is holy. God is righteous. And although God is love, he certainly wouldn't force a man to get saved against his will because that wouldn't be love. That is coercion. All right, again, God's omnipresence is one of his attributes. We call this in classical uh, scholastic theology God's immensity. That is, he is present everywhere at one and the same time. Notice 1 Kings 8:27. David said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me. This is what David says in Psalm 139, verse 7 to 9. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? The same Lord that knows where every hair in your head is, and Christ said he did. The same Lord that watches the sparrow fall to the ground, and Christ said he did. After all, your opinion doesn't count very much. I realize some of you people think I'm very blunt, but that's because you're rather stupid. After all, if Christ said one thing and you say another, your argument is with him, not me. You needn't pick bones with me and get upset with Dr. Ruckman. Uh, get in a fight with Jesus Christ. He said a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your father knowing it. He said the very hairs in your head are numbered, and if you don't believe that, get in a fist fight with him. And don't get shook up with me. You just betray your lack of intelligence. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, we read about Christ's body being the fullness of him that filleth all in all. God everywhere at once. If you could get to Jupiter, you couldn't hide from God. If you get to Venus, he'd still know which one of your teeth was going to decay the first. And if you got to Venus and back and put up a settlement, the, still, the Lord would still know about those pornographic magazines you read in the spaceship going up. You see? You see why a lot of people don't believe in God? They can't afford to. In the dirty, filthy, wicked lives they're living, they can't afford a check. They want to check Sunday morning, some of them. Some of them will stand up and say, Look here, Brother Ruffman, I'm a vestryman, I'm a deacon. Uh-huh, sure. 
Anybody can get a God that checks on them once a week or twice a week, or if you're real dedicated, three times a week. But what about that Saturday night late TV show, huh? The Bible says, The eye of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. He's omniscient, all-knowing. The Bible says there's no shadow of darkness where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Job confessed, No thought can be withholden from me. And Isaiah said, There is no searching of his understanding. The Bible says, For every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Someday God will take that car you were in last Friday or Saturday night, rip that thing back like a sardine can, and everybody in town will know all about it. If there's one thing that Bible makes clear, it makes it clear the fact that God knows what's going on, how it's going on, when it's going on, where it's going on, who's doing it, and why they're doing it. Now, the heathen know this unconsciously. The heathen have a knowledge of God which far surpasses the greatest brains in the uh, men who write for the Scientific American and the Scientific Journals and are members of the American Association of Scientists. And it is true that we have uh, on those boards and in that group occasionally a sprinkling of a few Christians who use about 30 different versions in order, in order to prove their own authority instead of the authority of the Word of God, but this neither here nor there. The point is that education is the great force many times in getting a man to deny his common sense and rationality, and education many times is the damning factor in a man's life. As a famous educator once said, education without salvation is damnation. And the reason not hard to find. Education, as it broadens a man's mind and teaches him to have an open mind, inserts a little garbage as the opening gets wider. And one of the great handicaps of education above the high school level, or especially above the college level, is it is a magpie's nest of an ecumenical smorgasbord that indiscriminately mixes everything together and teaches lack of discernment. The great characteristic of the educated man today is his inability to discern anything morally. Now, it's amazing how discriminating these people are and exacting they are when they begin to set up programs for computers. It's an amazing thing. In watching digital systems and validated documentation of scientific facts, such as the works and enzymes, genes and chromosomes, amino acids, and so forth and so on, and the genetic codes and chain reactions, it's amazing how excruciatingly exact and pinpoint and refined these gentlemen can be. And some of them would have a heart attack if you pronounce one of their words the wrong way and would say, obviously not educated, you pronounce it the right way. And yet, when these blind idiots get hold of moral pro uh, 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 problems and ethical problems and problems that deal with eternity and right and wrong and heaven and hell, you'd be amazed at the careless, slovenly, haphazard way they go about it. One may truthfully say that an educated man who uses the objective scientific method in his approach to life never applies it to himself a day in his life. It is a test tube or microscopic approach, and the hypocrites who practice it do not practice it when it comes to matters of morals, religion, and ethics. For example, I'll give an example. There is one educated, unsaved man in this country listening to my voice or not listening to my voice, that doesn't believe the hope of this world lies in making this world a better place to live in and the scientific advancement 
by getting all religions together and magnifying the common elements of each one instead of magnifying the differences. Amen? The unregenerate mind says, well, that makes good sense. Why, that's the height of madness. Is that how you got the rocket to the moon by pretending that all the chemical elements were the same? You talk about scientific advancement. Is that how Edison did it, was it? Is that how Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler did it, was it? Was it by seeing how many things they could make the same that looked different? Now, who are you trying to fool? The scientific method is a, man, a matter of sorting out different approaches and different theories and testing them under control conditions to discern the difference and select the best possible one. Now, how do you account for the fact these educated people profess to be scientific when it comes to matters of religion and the Word of God are just as blind as a bat coming in backwards and couldn't find a bowling ball or a bathtub? For example, tell me what major religion today has a living Savior and what religion today would be no religion if the body of its founder could be found. For example, name me one. Now here's a bunch of crazy people, educated crazy people, intellectual, intelligent uh, morons going around telling you all religions are the same, ignoring the blaring, salient, scientific, historical fact that if you could find the body of one of them, the whole religion would have to go out the window. Why, the dead corpse of Buddha doesn't interfere with the practice of Buddhism. The dead corpse of Muhammad doesn't interfere with the practice of Muhammadism. Who are you trying to fool? The dead corpse of Confucianism hinders nobody from practicing Confucianism. If they found Zoroaster's corpse, it wouldn't interfere with the practice of that religion. How do you explain the fact there's only one religion on the face of this earth where the corpus delecti, the missing corpse, is the determining factor? What do you mean they're all the same? Why, you have no religious book you can get your hands on that prophesies 1,500 details of the future and they all come through in the money without a hitch in history. What book is that? It isn't the Shastas. It isn't the Puranas. It isn't the Bhagavad Gita. It isn't the Tripitaka. There are no writings by Khalil Gibran, the prophet, or Jean Dixon, the prophetess, or Edgar Cayce, the prophet, that prophesy 1,500 details of one man's life before he's born. We're speaking from the standpoint of mathematical fact. We're not dealing with faith in these grounds. We're dealing with a God who knows the future from the beginning and the past from the middle and the middle from the past and the past from the future and has committed himself to writing as an omnipresent, all-present, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful God. No religion in the world even offers a competition. Muhammad prophesied nothing about the restoration of Israel, the rebuilding of Babylon, the ascendancy of the Roman Catholic Church, the taking over the United Nations by the Antichrist, the ten federated kingdom that will be forming up in Europe in the next ten years, the rapture, the second advent, the two witnesses, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the millennium, the battle of Gog and Magog, the battle of Armageddon, 
the vials of wrath of the tribulation, the length of the tribulation, the time of the tribulation, or the personalities involved in the tribulation. To compare the religions with biblical astronomy is a joke if you're scientific. If you are able to discriminate scientifically and weigh and judge and evaluate evidence and validate documented material, it's a joke. It is a subject worthy of serious consideration. Now, it's true that in the blind fanatical ignorance of some of the self-righteous stupid people that uh, come into contact with these things, they may be perfectly justified in their own minds and their own choice, and we've never contested this. The Bible said, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. I mean, if you want to go blindly on your own way, that's your business in a free country. As long as America is free as it is, you're perfectly free to go to hell if you like to help yourself. We don't invite you to do it. We don't want you to do it. We're praying you won't. But if you insist on being stupid and dogmatic and bigoted about it and reactionary and insist on clinging to the outmoded pagan superstitions of 400 B.C., that's your business. May I warn you, there has been a revelation before then and since then, which you've, you can read, you will be held accountable for, by a God who is omnipresent, immutable, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, omniscient, and omnipotent. And if the Bible revelation of God is right, you will give account for your ignorance. For in the Bible it is called willful ignorance. You can know God. You may not know his incommunicable attributes, the attributes which are part of his essential nature. And maybe your little frail human mind will never be able to grasp fully, certainly it won't, the eternity of God or the immensity of God. But our next broadcast will take up the study of God's communicable attributes. That is those attributes which the Godhead can communicate to mankind in such a way that a man can understand these things about God. And although we never be, may never be able to fully grasp till we get home to heaven, the nature of God in being completely eternal, infinite, filling heaven and earth always as an infinite presence with no beginning and no ending, and of course the finite mind cannot grasp these things, we can certainly come to grips with the communicable attributes of God, those attributes which God has revealed about himself to man, which a man can understand and grasp. And our next radio broadcast will take up the communicable attributes of God, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's mercifulness, God's love, God's faithfulness, and also the communicable attributes such as his compassion, his trueness, his jealousy, his greatness, his, perfe his perfectness, and other things. Our next broadcast will deal with the theological subject of the communicable attributes of God. On today's broadcast, we have been discussing the incommunicable attributes of God, which we shall review once again. First of all, God's infinity, or his eternity, then his immutableness, which is his unchangeableness, then his omnipotence, which is his power, then his omnipresence, which is his immensity, and finally his all-knowledge, which is his omniscience. Glory be to God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. His name is above every name. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says about this great God who came down to this earth manifest in the flesh as a man from outer space, more than a humanoid, the omnipotent, omnipresent God collapsed into humanity to suffer for man's sake and die. The Bible says about this man, God hath given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend 
Every tongue should bow, every, every head should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until the same time, may the uh, same time next week, may the Lord bless you and good day.